welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person, stay tuned because this show is dedicated to you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've also advised startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. I'm here to share what I've learned and find others willing to share as well. I can tell you for sure I have made a lot of mistakes. I've also seen a lot of mistakes, and I'd love to help those of you out there maybe at least not make some of those mistakes. The other goal of the show is to inspire. I found it was lonely a lot of the time, confusing, sometimes really discouraging. What better way to provide inspiration and to share the forum with other guests willing to share their stories and their advice. I'm lucky to have not one, but two guests today with me, Lori and Tracy Tappany. They are the co-presidents of Wyoming Machine, a metal fabrication company based in Stacy, Minnesota. Wyoming Machine does lots of cool stuff like welding and laser cutting and punching of metal components. You know, the kind of stuff that all the women that we know do. Anyway, they are definitely in a man's world still today. And they're going to share their story of how they have taken on the family business. So Lori and Tracy, thanks so much for being with me on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much, Doris. We're really thrilled to be with you today. Yeah, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. First, tell me a little more about Wyoming Machine Does. This is Lori, and Wyoming Machine is a precision metal fabrication company. So you did a great job in the intro talking about some of the services we provide. We are making 100% custom products for a variety of different manufacturing companies. We are taking their blueprints, using our skilled people and amazing equipment, and we are making something delightful for them. Our customers are in a wide variety of markets, everywhere from aerospace and defense to uh, custom navigational and instrumental type of equipment and custom packaging. And so we just have a really diverse group of customers that make really fascinating products. Wow. And are most of them long-term customers, I'm guessing, repeat customers? or Yes. One of the things that we are the most proud of is that in our top, top group of customers, we have at least uh, five that have been with us for almost our entire existence. So last week, we took a tour through the Minnesota chapter of Women in Manufacturing and the company we visited has been our customer since our company was founded in 1974, which is really a testament to building good relationships and building great products. Wow, that's fantastic. Talk a little bit about the history of the company and how the two of you got involved. Our dad founded Wyoming Machine in 1974. He had a background in machining, had been working in the industry, um, and decided back in that time frame that he and a couple of other people that he worked with were going to leave the company they were working at and start their own business. So as Lori said, they found a customer and it's a customer that we still have today and started a machine shop business. As the company progressed and the years went on, 
laser cutting equipment was new on the scene. That kind of happened in the 1980s. And our dad was always somebody who was interested in technology and trying to keep on the cutting edge of technology in the industry. And he bought one of the first laser cutting machines that existed in the state of Minnesota. That started our entry into the sheet metal fabrication business. You know, as kids growing up, we always knew that our dad was doing a great job in his business. I mean, obviously, it's hard to start a business. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time and a lot of effort. Sometimes things don't go as well as you hoped. But, you know, we grew up with that knowledge of how hard he was working and the great business that he was creating. Um, Went on to college. Both Lori and I went to the University of Minnesota and have degrees from the Carlson School of Management there. So we were business people. And that that was the dream, I think, of both of our parents, um, that we would go to college. And Lori was actually the first person in our family to go to college, and I followed in her footsteps. We were really living the family dream, I think. Lori ultimately graduated with a degree in accounting and became a certified public accountant. I had an emphasis in my business degree in risk management and insurance um, and ultimately ended up working in international trade finance at one of the larger banks here in Minnesota. Um, But when we were in our mid-20s, you know, just a few years out of college and still relatively young, um, Lori and I surprisingly got called to a meeting with um, someone that my dad was working with. He was actually working with a team of people to try to think about the future of the company and how he would someday be able to transition out and someone else would become the owners of the company. Um, So Lori and I went to this meeting, you know, knowing that we were going to be talking about the business, but our dad was not there. It was just Lori and I and someone that was representing him. Um, And he presented an opportunity um, to Lori and I to become the owners of the business, um, which I think that We were surprised. Um, We weren't expecting that because our dad, quite frankly, was still in his early 50s at the time. And so this decided to interrupt, but this was not like it it always had been the family dream. I mean, here's maybe where um, uh, girls and boys in the family are different, that uh, a lot of times, at least people in my generation, the father would have this hope and would always talk about the son coming into the business with with him. Um, yeah, no, we had never talked about it. Case. Yeah, that's not the case for you. It, it was it was a unique situation. And to this day, it's it's something that when we're out in the world and in our community, people always ask us about it. And I think it's unique. Our father, obviously, was a unique entrepreneur because I'm sure you have met many people that are second generation owners of a business where the founder really stays in the business a long time. So a a unique part of our story is that once we made the decision to join the company, we only worked side by side with our dad for three years and he just stopped coming to work. And so after a couple of years passed, Trace and I were talking about it and we said, gosh, I wonder if dad's ever going to come back to work. (laughs) Do you think we should ask him? And so we did. And he's like, no, I retired. And then we asked him if he wanted a party and he said, no. (laughs) And so he just left. He never asks us any questions about the business. He just left and pursued new and interesting hobbies. Like he took up scuba diving. 
underwater photography. So I think that's unique. That is pretty unique. Talk a little bit about that transition. It sounds like it was all very collaborative, but he was just very good about separating himself from the business he built, which I think actually is pretty unique. It's, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, their business is their baby and trying to peel their fingers. I mean, you know, they're they're going to hang on to it with a death grip almost. And your dad sounds like he just wasn't like that at all. No, I don't, I don't think it was like that at all. I mean, I thought, I think that when we came in, he worked really hard to make sure that we had a strategy as a team of three people, Lori and I and himself, you know, and we talked about the fact we're not going to let people divide and conquer us because just like in a family situation, sometimes that can happen. You know, parents go to, kids go to one parent and ask a question, but if they say no, they're going to go to the other parent and ask. And so we really focused on how we would stay together as a team. But I think for our dad, he had other interests. And when the time came for him, he he was ready to be done with it. And, you know, like Lori said, oddly enough, when he did leave, you know, not only did he not really make it clear for a little while until we finally had to ask him, but he really has stayed out of the business, um, has not questioned what we have done, has not tried to, um, you know, influence decisions that Lori and I have made. And so I think as second generation owners, I would say that that has been very useful and helpful um, because we don't have any kind of, I don't think, underlying conflict with our dad about what we've been doing in this business. And so um, honestly, that worked very well for us. I would say that is pretty unique. So kudos to your dad for A, realizing in a timely fashion that it was time to pass on the business. B, being able to collaboratively do it for a defined period of time until he felt you were ready to spread your wings on your own. And three, to be able to continue to stay out of it and and just say, it's done. That, that to me is remarkable. That's kind of a B-school case study almost of how to do a business transition. Yeah, but I think one of the things that your listeners may find of interest is that, um, you know, Lori and I were both around 30, early 30s when he exited the business. We'd only been here a few years and Lori and I ended up finding ourselves in a situation where we were both going to be having our first children literally at the same time. Their due dates were only two weeks apart. And Lori and I were out of the office on maternity leave when our dad made his final decision that he was going to move on with his life and was not going to continue to come to work while Lori and I were on maternity leave. So obviously he trusted the process and things went well. Lori and I worked it out and you know, ultimately we had an amazing situation for being able to be business women, entrepreneurs, and being mothers at the same time. We we worked out a solution that allowed us to kind of have all of that going on at one time. And honestly, for me personally, it's it's one of the things that I am most thankful for um, in this opportunity to have been an owner of Wyoming Machine is that I still got to be a mom. <laughs> Which was really great. And I'm just going to backtrack a little bit of one of the things that I think about at the time we joined the company that was just a perfect time for us to join is Wyoming Machine was implementing 
their first ever network system where there was going to be computers on the floor and, you know, everything from our scheduling to our inventory management to our financials, we're all going to be in this huge ERP system. Wow, and a big transition for any company. As well. Right. And I think that just our skill set from the positions that we had been in before we joined the company were just perfect, coupled with the fact that Wyoming Machine is located in a small town. We have very low turnover. There's people that we went to school with that work here that or people that we have known most of our lives. And so we were really ideal candidates for implementing a brand new software system, coupled with the fact that we knew the people on the floor so we could really implement in a way so that we could bring everybody on board because it was a huge change to add computers in 1994. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm listening to your comment. I come from a little small town where my dad was, there was a GE manufacturing plant there that I actually worked in for a couple of summers. And, you know, it's interesting you say that. It can be an advantage in the right situation to know people, but it can also be a challenge sometimes because you may not have been exactly what they were imagining. Talk about how you went through that evaluation process and also garnering trust of these people who have been long-term employees. I will say it did not take Lori and I a real long time to decide that we want to do it. You know, I think within a matter of weeks, we had decided. Our dad helped us in our decision-making by letting us know that the business ran itself and it was going to be a really <laughs> yes. great opportunity really? for us. <laughs> yes, the business, the business ran itself. And, and, and we grew up in a family where, you know, being active parents and caring for your family was an important responsibility that we learned growing up. And I, I think that our dads thought that because the business for him at least ran itself, <laughs> Lori and I would be able to, you know, spend more time at home being able to care for our children. And, you know, we found, you know, I want to say, I think the industry itself has been easier to function in than it is today. I mean, what we have found over the years that we've been here is that manufacturing has gotten increasingly more difficult for all kinds of different reasons. You know, less manufacturing overall in the U.S., global competition, rising material prices, supply chain issues, you know, the list goes on and on. And so I think, you know, during the time when he was looking at transitioning the business, a person could make good money. It's not that you didn't have to work hard, but it was different challenges than we face today. And so I don't think that he was being intentionally dishonest when he told us it would run itself, but it did not run itself. <laughs> but, you know, Lori and I, we're close in age. We're only 13 months apart in age. And so, you know, we shared a room growing up. We went to the same college and lived together during college. We lived together after college before we got married. So we're close people. And when the opportunity was presented to be able to work together every day and try to work together to run a successful business that was appealing to us personally. 
I'll tell you that in my work in international trade finance, we were working a lot with people who are exporting. And they're the same kind of people that we work with in this business. They're people that are building equipment and machines and selling them both domestically and overseas. So I already knew what it was like to visit people's manufacturing plants, look at equipment and was interested in that, quite frankly. You know, and then Lori's financial background um, gave us a good backbone there for the financial operations of the business. And then, you know, we've just continued to do things to learn all the intricacies of this business as we've continued to go along over all these years. And when I think about the people that worked at Wyoming Machine, you know, at the time, several of them are still working here right now. But I think there was generally a sense of excitement that Tom wasn't going to be selling the business to some, some outsider. And I think people had a very positive feeling about the fact that we were going to be joining the company. So I think we, we did not have a difficult time building trust internally. It definitely was odd for the industry as a whole um, for us to join the company because even now there's not a high, high percentage of women in the metals industry. There are not. And um, that's why I jokingly it, said that in my intro about that's whatever all all the women that you know are doing, they're not <laughs> unfortunately they are not. <laughs> you know, maybe that's actually in a way a tribute to your dad's management talent and open mindedness. Maybe that people weren't surprised because, as I say, coming from a small town, depending on how entrenched the mindset is it sounds like he did a great job hiring and helping people understand to stay open to change and that's you know that's a tribute to his vision and and the culture of the company which is great I, I think you're right about that and I think you know um to even when Lori and I arrived here at Wyoming Machine there were women that worked here and a fair number of them. They ran equipment, they worked in production, they worked in office roles. So he was not a kind of person, and he's still not a kind of person who has a vision that women have certain roles and and men have other roles and they could never cross or meet or whatever you might want to say about it. Even growing up, we were a family of three daughters. There was work to be done at home. And not only were we expected to do the work that, you know, my mom needed help with cooking, cleaning, sewing, whatever it might have been, we had to do outside work. And so, you know, we learned how to mix cement when we were little kids because our dad thought we should learn how to make a sidewalk at home. And we had to cut down trees and take care of the yard, lawn mow it, trim all the shrubs, all that sort of thing. So we learned as much about doing man's work as we did about woman's work. And that's just the way we were raised. And he's a total advocate for women. We had the good fortune to grow up, as Tracy said, being just as likely to get a chainsaw and saw down a tree as we were to make a a Sunday meal or host a brunch at our house for teenagers. And, and he always stressed that we could do or be anything that we wanted to and set our, and set our mind to. And and both of our parents just really got behind us. If, you know, I think Trace studied architecture kind of drafting stuff in high school. She took a class about, being a cook and 
I'm an artist and we could just try different things. I can even remember being in college and, you know, having stress about an exam that was coming up. And he was just a real positive person as far as letting you know what you were capable of. And I feel very grateful. Yeah, you definitely should, because I had four brothers and two sisters. And I remember getting into this big argument with my mom and my dad. Because my mom said, you need to do this cleaning. And meanwhile, my dad told one of my brothers, you need to mow the lawn. And I said, I want to mow the lawn. I don't like (laughs) cleaning. Why can't I mow the lawn? And why can't my brother Joe do this cleaning? I don't understand. And I got in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Yeah. So it kind of depends on the family you come from, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, you can just have this vision, Doris, of our father in the era, it's the 1970s, and we're kids, and he came home one day, and Tracy and I got our first motorcycles when we were in kindergarten and first grade. Wow. So no little Barbie cars for you guys, right? No Barbie cars for us. We even had evil Knievel motorcycle helmets, which encouraged us to do jumps and stuff like that in the yard. (laughs) One of the things you touched on that I think is really interesting is how manufacturing and the challenges have changed. You know, on first blush, my listeners might say, well, you know, your show is about entrepreneurship. How does Wyoming Machine, a longtime family business, fit into entrepreneurship? You know, my answer really is I think entrepreneurship comes in lots of different shapes and forms. Every entrepreneur is not necessarily somebody who starts a an app and grows it into a multi-billion dollar business. Manufacturing in particular is an area that has required a lot of entrepreneurial skills and probably has weeded out some management teams who were maybe not up to that challenge because things have been changing so fast. I really believe you need entrepreneurial skills to stay on top of things. And I kind of had the suspicion that you probably feel the same way. So talk about how the how manufacturing has changed and how you've had to be more entrepreneurial to stay profitable and keep up with the competition. This is Tracy speaking, and I think Lori's going to have some great examples. But one thing when you mention this that really comes to mind for me is, you know, when people think about manufacturing, especially in the metals industry, and I guess really a lot of different kinds of manufacturing, you know, You think about what happened during the Industrial Revolution and, you know, standardization and high volume manufacturing. And traditionally, that has been what American manufacturing has been about. You know, not that many years after Lori and I arrived here at Wyoming Machine, you know, we were a company that was maintaining a lot of inventory. We actually had a new section of our building that when we got here was just for stocking parts so that we could have these parts ready to ship to customers. But we started experiencing, not long after we got here, really intense competition from Asia as a market to do manufacturing in. And many people know that lots of U.S. manufacturers started moving a large percentage of their manufacturing overseas. I think entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial skills came into play for Lori and I when we had to start thinking about 
what are we going to do to change this business so that we can continue to be manufacturers in the metals industry when high volume work does not exist like it did when our father started the company, when we first got here and Lori and I really started, you know, using our thought process, our creativity to figure out what to do. And ultimately we embarked on a path to become very skilled and very competitive at low volume, high mix manufacturing, which was a much different kind of business than existed when we first got here. And so that's, that's a real world, I think, example of a way that we had to try to adapt, but I'm going to let Lori jump in and lend some additional detail to that. You know, when I, I completely agree with what Tracy has just shared and an example of some things that we've done. So we make custom products. So you think of a manufacturer that makes their own products and they might have different product code groups that they're analyzing. We've done a lot of things over time, although we're a service provider, sheet metal fabrication services, we have implemented things to help us slice and dice and really drill down to understanding our business. So we have product codes, but our product codes are related to what process a part goes through. So if we wanted to any day, we can look at the detail of our profitability when we cut something, form it, have it go through welding and get outside service. And it helped us continue to innovate and understand our business. So if suddenly we look at it and we think, wow, why are we less profitable on things that go through X department? We'll just use welding as an example. It is a pathway for us to do continuous improvement because we do a deep dive. We look at that department. Is there technology that we need to invest in for our team? For instance, do we need cranes? Do we need tables? What do we need to do to facilitate? Do we need to do training and education in our estimating department so they understand that certain things we do it takes longer time in welding or it's an operation that requires a couple of people. So those are just some examples of our business. I think that I would also put in this category of entrepreneurial thinking is the ways that we've shifted with workforce over time. The workforce of today is not the workforce in the 1990s where you had published hours. So you either want to work these or you don't. Things have gotten a lot more flexible in terms of working with people and their schedules. And Trace, do you want to add anything to that with workforce? I mean, there's there's a ton to be said about workforce on a lot of different fronts, but I just think in general with this question on entrepreneurship, while the idea of manufacturing in and of itself is sort of an age old idea. People have been manufacturing since the dawn of time. Um, if you can't be creatively thinking, being willing to change, being able to look at where you have gaps, what's coming down the pike and adapt to that, um, you cannot survive in this industry. Um, we could have never survived this long as it was if we weren't constantly changing and adapting and being willing to do things differently than we've done in the past. Yeah, absolutely. 
we were talking about how you shifted from high volume now to more of a custom shop. Talk a little bit about why that's a sea change and what kinds of things need to happen in order for a company to make that kind of shift. You know, I think that kind of change has required some changes in technology and internal processes because, you know, oftentimes when you think about pricing, which is super important in any business that someone might be in, setup time matters in manufacturing. And if you're going to all of a sudden start producing in lower quantities, you have to think about how can we do setups more quickly, more efficiently, so that you don't price yourself out of the market. You know, I think in the low volume manufacturing world, customers are more accustomed probably to paying a higher price than you would for high volume because high volume products are often more at the commodity level. And custom fabrication is a little bit different, but still you have to be efficient and be cost competitive. And so, you know, we've we've done a lot of things over time um, to try to reduce just the cost of setup and change over to different kinds of products. And like I said, some of that has been investing in technology machines that allow us to do setup quicker than we could do in the past. Some of it has just been in process or procedural changes to um, reduce the amount of paperwork that people are doing or grouping similar raw materials together so that if we're gonna pull a certain raw material to process it, we process several jobs of the same raw material. So um, really a lot of different things had to come together and it, it took time to get that figured out. And you know we're still learning and finding ways, I think, to, to continue to get more and more efficient as time goes on in processing in this low volume, high mix world of very complicated products. Well, Just you know, it, even you were mentioning, uh, one of the two of you was mentioning how you've got product codes that relate to the process it goes through. And I got to imagine something like that allows you to be able to cost your production costs and know what to charge. I, you know, I've worked with several manufacturing businesses who have no idea really what their cost of production is. And so at the end of the day, when there's a lot of different pricing options, it's very difficult for them to know whether they're even making money or not. Yes, I I can see where that would happen. I'm just going to give a specific example of a technology that we invested in that really supports our high mix, low volume kind of business. So in the forming area, we have press breaks, your typical press break has its tooling, you walk over to a rack, you get the appropriate tooling you need to make a certain type of form. You use tools to remove the tooling that's currently in the machine and you set it up with the new tooling, which takes a fair amount of time. Press brakes started coming out originally with a robotic component that was a robot that was basically taking the place of the human being that was physically putting the metal in and forming the parts. And a few years ago, the technology was added that was an automatic tool changer. So for our type of business, this is a wonderful investment because the press brake has its tooling inside of it. And you can, when you buy it, select the tooling that you would like to have that is going to be useful in your business. You can change it, you can add, but that machine can do any setup in three minutes or less. 
So rather than having a person who has to do all the work to remove tooling, walk and find the new tooling, walk back and install the new tooling, this machine can do anything in three minutes or less. So that's wonderful for us. But it also goes back to your labor point that you made, which is constantly helping find higher and better uses for your valued employees is a really important skill set too, it strikes me. Talk about that. That definitely is something, um, especially in the manufacturing side that we have to think about because, you know, we're in a, not just Wyoming machine, the industry as a whole, I think most industries right now are are dealing with labor um, shortages, but, you know, we've been kind of heading in this direction for a long time that labor is difficult to find, skills are difficult to find. And so we do try to keep our most skilled people focused on the most difficult tasks that only very skilled people can do. I think the other thing that some of this automation and technology has helped with is it does allow you to bring in people with lower levels of skills. So someone with a lower level of skill can actually operate the machine that Lori was just describing very effectively, but it starts to give them an opportunity to work with bending metals, to start to understand, you know, the measurement skills they need. They start to learn things about tooling, what happens to metal when you bend it, which ultimately puts them on a path to becoming even more highly skilled where they could operate other pieces of equipment Um, So I think that technology like that helps with a pathway, which is really what's needed um, in the industry today, because often people are coming in with not quite quite the right set of skills that you need, and you got to figure out ways to get them on some pathways um, towards higher levels of skill. For sure. Well, let's switch gears and talk about your management structure. The two of you are co-presidents. How did the two of you come to decide on that? And how have you navigated successfully around what could be, you know, could be tensions or challenges on that structure? Trace, you tell you have a funny story. You know, the truth of the matter is when we realized that our father had retired because we finally got up the courage to ask him why he hadn't come to work in a few years, you know, Lori and I had to say, well, what are we going to do? Because we were both in roles as vice presidents in the company um, when he decided to retire. And because Lori is, you know, a little over a year older than me, she is my older sister. And um, I did say to her in a uh, childish uh, sibling like way, you are not going to be the boss of me. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. And so as ridiculous as it seems, I me, mean, Lori and I are close. We've you know, lived our whole lives together. And so those are the kind of things sometimes that we say to each other. Um, but we did start talking about what other structures might exist. We even sought some outside counsel from people that we knew that were leading companies that had titles that were different than what you traditionally see. Um, so, you know, eventually we we decided that we would move forward with this idea of being co-presidents. She and I, while we have skills that are similar and we both know stuff about every element of our business, Lori has some strengths and some skill sets that I don't have. Also, I think I have some strengths and skill sets that Lori doesn't have. So we kind of divided up responsibilities of what we would oversee. But then we ultimately come together when big decisions have to be made. When we think about strategy, I mean, Lori and I are going to, you know, work on that together. I don't know that we've ever had 
vastly diverging ideas about strategy. I mean, sometimes tactics might be a little bit different on how we might want to get from point A to point B. But strategically, um, I think in terms of the culture of the company, we're you know in alignment on those kinds of things. Um, I think there's a, a lot of you know mutual respect. You have to have mutual respect for each other if you're going to be co-presidents. I think that yeah. we've met people since we've set an example by doing this, where we know people in other companies that are also using this model. And you know what I'll say is important about the self-respect part is when we do run into a situation where we don't agree on the resolution, we have enough respect for each other to know who the leader in any particular wheelhouse is. So to give an example, if Trace really, really, really wants a new million dollar plus system, and I look at it from a financial perspective and I say, now is not the right time, even though she really, really wanted that piece of equipment, at the end of the day, she would say, I get it. Or I might go back to the drawing board and say, you know what? I didn't put together the justification for, you know, I oversee manufacturing. That's why it would be that I might be talking to her about something I want in on the equipment side. But, you know, I think about it and I, I just say, you know what? I didn't build a good enough case for this because if I had, we would make it work, you know? And so I might go back to the drawing board and say, what did I miss? And so I think in that regard, that's a strong attribute to have in sort of a shared leadership model. It's funny that you say you're not going to be the boss of me because it sounds to me like in some ways you've really agreed to let each other be the boss of the other, depending on the situation. I think that's true. I think that is true. We get to both be the boss sometimes. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm curious about your transition from more traditional finance to small town manufacturing. I can imagine some of the skills that you were very, very prepared for, particularly when it comes to sophisticated things like finance and, you know, um, maybe uh, knowledge of software systems and all the advantages they present. But I'm guessing there were some things that were pretty steep learning curves. Is that fair? And if so, can you talk about that a little bit? I'll share something that comes to mind for me. And one of the things that I would see as kind of a gap of understanding was the roles that we had before joining Wyoming Machine were in you know, business, finance, Trace was in international trade and finance, where, you know, we worked, we traveled, um, we worked on projects on, you know, teams of people where you problem solved and you worked with, you know, if I was out on an audit, there was men and women on my audit team. And Trace, had the same situation. And I think we were a little unknowledgeable about working in a manufacturing environment 
um, although there were quite a few women that worked in the company, one of the things that early on came up is that, you know, if we had an issue, say we had a certain job that we weren't successful at, our inherent uh, nature because of the of where we came from is that we would pull a people, a team of people together in a room, would get the folder, the drawing and talk about what went wrong on something and the postmortem, right? That's, that's what you always do. Or exactly. But what we quickly realized is that people were not equipped to do that. Like they (laughs) were not used to coming together to solve a problem in that way. And, you know, they'd just sit down at the table and somebody would say, well, I'll tell you what went wrong. John doesn't know what he's doing and he messed up. And that was the extent of problem solving. So I think that we were fairly unique in the 1990s when we embarked on a improvement process that involved um, bringing somebody in. We, everyone in the whole company read Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We had regular books, we had audible books, we had large print books, and we developed uh, a set of, of core values for our company about the way we wanted to be when we worked with each other. And then also everyone learned problem solving techniques of, you know, a process to go through when something goes wrong. And I think that people really enjoyed um, having the opportunity to do that and, and learn a way to, to solve problems. Their brains. Yeah. Be, be, you know, take a more, more of an, have a more ownership feel of a company, which is great. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that in, high mix, low volume manufacturing, which is what we now reside in. You know, Lori and I came from backgrounds where you had standard operating procedures for everything. And I am a, I am a very strong believer in processes because processes are what manufacturing is about and you have to have processes. But I think that over time, and I think I'm actually, even after 25 years, I feel like I'm kind of hitting my stride about understanding the fact that in a business like with this and with the people that have to use procedures and processes, a book or a manual full of standard operating procedures is actually not helpful. It might be helpful for Lori and I as an overriding guidance of the company, but they're more visual than that. They're more hands-on. And so, you know, I think I've I've been really working hard over the years to develop my skills to figure out how do I keep you know, defined processes in place without a million written procedures that people are not going to read. They don't want to read them. They may not be able to comprehend them in the same way as they can some other visual way of showing them what's happening or, you know, whatever the case might be. You you need something because otherwise a key person leaves and then all that knowledge is walked out the door. So that is correct. You know, that's a, that's a tough balance. Yeah, it is. I think one other gap that I'll just mention is, you know, based on the upbringing that we had where we were kind of kids that grew up with, you know, really supportive parents that let us try things and do things. We, I don't, I think that internally, the people that worked at Wyoming Machine, they were thrilled we came on. 
everything was great. But I think we underestimated like how weird it was going to be externally, you know, when we would go places and people were like, what? Well, there's there's women here. <laughs> I was going to ask you about some of the challenges externally, because um, there there are lots of places where I'm sure you interfaced with customers or suppliers or um, your transportation partners or uh, industry events. And I'm sure it was challenging and still is maybe even challenging uh, being a woman in, in an industry like yours. Yeah. You know, I, well, there's a lot of funny things that we could tell you. They're funny now. Um, they weren't funny then. I mean, even one of Lori and I's first experiences in the industry, you know, we're, we're going to get ready to go to a machine show um, to look at some equipment and um, you know, Lori and I are people that are used to preparing, studying, making sure that our competence shows up, you know, when we go someplace so that people don't think that we don't know what we're doing. And I can remember personally studying our machine manuals, machine brochures, because I wanted to make sure that if anybody asked me about the machines we had at that moment, that I knew everything I could possibly know. So it was weeks of study for me to become expert on it. So you, Lori, you felt pressure, in other words, to you felt extra pressure to make sure you came across as competent and, you know, not some ditzy blonde female, right? That's correct. And I, I would say we still feel a certain amount of pressure depending on what we're doing. But Lori and I go to this show and we walked in and the first event of the show that we were going to to look at equipment was a cocktail party. Lori and I, as you say, are two young females in an industry where women do not own companies, blonde hair. We go into this cocktail room and the person that we were working with shouted over the crowd of men that were in the room, hey, everybody, the blondes are mine. <gasps> and, um, you know, honestly, we had... Wow. We had nothing to say, no way to react to that. But that kind of set the tone for our first experience of going out of the company without our dad coming with us to look at equipment. You know, we were in a position to buy something if we felt like it. Um, and, you know, we kind of pulled back from going outside of the company after a few experiences like that. And for a few years, honestly, we we focused very heavily on what we had going on internally and didn't venture out a whole lot. Oh, very sad. You know, um, that's yeah. a sad commentary. I'm sorry. It breaks my heart. Well, yeah. it's, it, I mean, just, it, I, you know, I don't know. It is what it is. Um, I would still say a certain amount of that exists today for people that know Lori and I, they know what we're capable of. They know the kind of business that we run and we would never have that kind of issue with them if we went out someplace um, you know, into the public sphere to do something, you know, occasionally you could still, I was at a, a welding show a few weeks ago with my lead welder. And, you know, quite frankly, I've gone to tech school to learn welding. I know as much, I don't weld on the shop floor, but I know a lot about welding and I'm very competent in that sphere. And, you know, some people that represent products in manufacturing, I don't know if they thought maybe I was his assistant or his secretary, but they don't talk to me. They only talk to him. Right. And, you know, that's an unfortunate situation. So I think we went, we, we went through this phase that Trace just described. And I think 
in those early years, we were like coming to the table, trying to think of how are we going to fit in in this industry? And what ultimately happened is an evolution where we didn't change to fit into the industry. We just did the things that we thought were right for our business and our company and were involved in our communities and our tech schools and our industry. And the industry realized, yep. hey, um, actually, they have good ideas. <laughs> you, you were kick butt women owners and managers and you let your work speak for itself. And today we show up where we go as ourselves, not who someone else thinks that we should be. We're just ourselves. And honestly, we found lots of people who are willing to accept that. And we're, we're grateful for it. Obviously, it is the right thing to do. But it, it's a lot easier to be people that work as hard as Lori and I do in a business and be able to go outside of our company and show up as our true selves not someone that someone else thinks that we should be. I don't, I don't think we could have survived if we would have tried to follow that pathway to modify ourselves I don't, to fit the world. I don't think so either. And last week I shared an email that I received. I shared the email with Tracy and it's going in a file of things that I call, I'm never going to forget this. Like here's a file of emails I want to keep forever. But we had someone from one of our customers that was retiring last week. It was be sure to catch new episodes as they're posted. Be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11. Tenure of a relationship with this company, which has been a long time. And she sent an email to me and she said, thank you for running a business all these years that we could always trust. And I just thought that was so great to send that to us. You know, things don't always go right. Things can happen in our process. But I think our, what our customers have come to know is you can trust us. We are going to problem solve. We're going to be on your team. We're going to be a good partner. And, you know, we are going to do our very best. So I think that that was a really great email to get. So looking back on your journeys, what advice would you offer to other women in manufacturing or women entrepreneurs? A few things come to mind for me. I mean, the thing about being your authentic self, you know, and, and sometimes as we mature and experience new things, I don't think our authenticity changes, but we discover more about ourselves that we didn't know. And so you got to stay on that path and you got to keep being the person that you are on the inside and that you're meant to be because people recognize that. I think that one of the things Lori and I have discovered over time is that developing sort of a personal brand, however, that shows up for you. But, you know, what do you stand for? What are the things that matter for you? What are the things that you care about? And being willing to speak about those things, sometimes take a, a risk and speak up about those things. For me personally, women in the industry, workforce, the challenges that workers face, the need for you know skills training, those are things that I care deeply about. And you know, sometimes I've had to take a risk and challenge the conversation that was happening or just sort of the same old things that everybody always said about that. Um, but what I found is that it's helped me to 
I don't know, hone in on where I can contribute to this industry, where I can contribute to this company and who I am as an individual leader, both inside my company and outside. Lori? One of the other things that's coming to mind for me is that I would recommend anybody that's pursuing a career, you know, anywhere, but especially in manufacturing is to put forward your best effort, but always be aware of what you are enjoying about your current job that you're doing and things that you might aspire to do. Because I think that that's really, really important for somebody's growth and happiness in life is to really have a good handle on what they enjoy, why they think they enjoy that aspect of their job. Not that you're going to necessarily get a job where you love doing every single thing, but we've had a lot of people that work at our company that have been able to try on new things. Maybe they come in at a certain position and they're moving to increasing skill levels and maybe they get to a certain thing that from the outside, it would be, wow, this is really a great step up. We encourage people to be honest. And if they've moved into something that they don't particularly enjoy, maybe they want to try out operating a certain piece of equipment and they discover that they don't want to do that. I just think keeping those lines of communication open within your organization and always being true to yourself. Am I using my best gifts and abilities? Am I enjoying what I'm doing? Those are great pieces of advice. Before I let you go, I want to have you, give you a chance to um, share with people your website in case they're interested in learning more or want to connect with either or both of you. That's great. I appreciate it. Our website is um, www.wyomingmachine.com. And uh, there's a lot of content on our website about the different types of work that we do. There is a place directly on the website that you can email us. Both Tracy and I see all of the emails that come into info at wyomingmachine.com. So that's a way to reach us um, or email. And it's ltappany at wyomingmachine.com or ttappany at wyomingmachine.com. Well, thank you both for joining me today. It was really a delight having you. I I have to say your business sounds like it's a lot of fun and pretty interesting place to work. So I hope that this has inspired maybe some young women out there who are interested in manufacturing or uh, maybe giving them inspiration if they're a little discouraged because not always easy. Again, thanks to the two of you for joining me. I really appreciate you sharing your stories. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Check out my new YouTube channel called the Savvy Entrepreneur Radio Show. There you'll find all sorts of past episodes of the show. I have been blessed with lots and lots of fantastic guests. And you can download or listen to past episodes of people sharing stories and advice from the heart. I guarantee you'll learn some things and come away inspired. So again, check out the Savvy Entrepreneur Radio Show YouTube channel. 
Be sure to like or comment on episodes and subscribe to the channel so that you'll be sure to catch new episodes as they're posted. Join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel wishing you happy entrepreneurship.